Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Jazz Times. Today we're revisiting my 2006 conversation with jazz impresario George Ween, who passed away last month at the age of 95. George enjoyed a long career spreading the jazz gospel around the world, from his early days creating the Newport Jazz Festival to the international spin-off events he produced throughout the years. George brought innovative marketing skills and his sensitivity as a musician to it all. George talked with me about creating the festival phenomenon, his own piano playing, and his long love affair with jazz. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. George and I met at his Manhattan office shortly before he was to open at Feinstein's with his own quartet. I asked him how he hoped to make the first Newport Jazz Festival different from previous festivals. It's a question that I, uh, I never know how to answer because I never had really a goal. <laughs> I was just doing things, and... Uh, when I had the opportunity to do a festival, I'd been playing all the artists in my club, Storyville. I knew which artists were popular. So I figured if I put enough of them on the stage in, in one evening, that people from all over New England would come. And not only did they come from all over New England, they came from all over the world, and that's what I didn't figure. But you don't plan those things. I mean, maybe now people plan them because the book was written in those days, but there was no book when I started. So we were just, uh, what my plan was to be a success and maybe do it the next year. That, <laughs> that was what it was. Yeah. You've been a success, George. I'll tell you, it worked. <laughs> it's kept me alive, and uh, uh, it's a struggle for many years, but I got a little bit ahead of the game when, uh, when Cool Cigarettes paid me some money, not to use the name Newport, because they were doing the Cool Newport Jazz Festivals, and... Somebody said, why is Cool sponsoring the Newport Jazz Festival when Newport's the name of another menthol cigarette? So they paid me a little bit of money to not use the Newport name for a few years. <laughs> Those things happen. But let me tell you, it is tough to make it in this business without sponsors. You can't make it. I think that's true of most concert presenting, though, isn't it? Even classical concerts, won't they have sponsors? The nonprofit has subscription and they have donations. Mm -hmm. I'm not nonprofit except most of the time. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's but, true of most jazz musicians. That's right. So we have to get marketing dollars, you know, from. Companies. And what made you think of that? Was it this serendipitous occurrence of Cool wanting to pay you? And then... It started with Schlitz beer, believe it or not. Mm. And uh, uh, I had a friend, Ben Barkin, who, uh, who became a friend who was w from Milwaukee. And he felt it was good for Schlitz to be involved with jazz. And we came up with a tour for him called the Schlitz Salute to Jazz. Brought Miles Davis and, uh, and I think Dionne Warwick was on it and Nina Simone, a few good, good list of artists. And we toured about uh, 20 cities, first time that had the name of a sponsor. And it was interesting, we went to Oklahoma City and they wouldn't take ads for beer. I said, hey, what's this got to do with beer? I mean, it's not Joseph Schlitz, bro. It's, it's Harry Schlitz. It's the Schlitz salute to jazz. They put the ad in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's wonderful. <laughs> well, I think of you as the biggest band leader in the world because your festivals are often putting people together to play together. So you are the conductor of all of this. And just as a big band leader puts a band together and thinks about people playing together, you get to do that all the time, and you've done it for years. And I'm fascinated with that process in terms of when you started out, and of course it's evolved to this huge entity that you have that has festivals all over the world. But when you were starting and thinking, I want to put these musicians together to do a jam session here or this, it's not as easy as it looks. You and I know this. People think anybody can play together, but it's not true. You put a lot of thought into this. Well, you do have to know something about music and about the personalities of musicians. But what I did do in the first festival, which uh, was unique, was I, I didn't care about the styles of the different groups not playing together, but playing on the same program. So you had Eddie Condon with, with Bobby Hackett and Wild Bill Davison on the same program with Lenny Tristano and Lee Konitz. That completely revitalized the whole structure of bringing jazz together as a family. And uh, so now on festivals, you'll have many kinds of music. And that was a major contribution. That, that, that was important because... I, I, in a sense, broke down this incredible rivalry between styles. I mean, it's still older musicians say the younger ones can't play, and the younger ones still say the older ones, are, they, they don't play anything, you know. And so, But there's still a respect for musicianship, and that's what counts. And I found that very much when I've done festivals, that the great thing for musicians so much is getting to hear all this other music because we're all traveling so much. You don't get to just have a moment that you say, okay, I'm done with my own concert. I can go hear something else. You get all that support from other musicians, which I think is great. They love it. They get together and they say hello to each other. It's, it's sort of like an all-star game at a baseball stadium where they get a chance to see each other personally from guys from the other league or something that they never see them. But I found that in the early days of my festivals, I didn't hear much music because I was so busy checking the sound and checking who's on next and checking this and checking how many tickets did we sell, you know, and that I missed some great music. I listen to the <laughs> records now, but now, believe it or not, when I'm at my festivals, I listen more to the music. I just go up on stage and listen. I don't run the festivals anymore. My, my team does, my company. In the early days, I mean, I really used to do everything, mm, mm. including sometimes emceeing and, and sometimes playing a piano. So you know, and you do that fairly often. That's got to be a great thing. I don't play that much now. Although on March twentieth, I played. Or I'm going to play. Well, it's, uh, I'm doing a thing at Feinstein's. I rehearsed yesterday with Bucky Pizzarelli and Jay Lenhard, and I'm singing. You know, and and. Uh, it's going to be very emotional because I'm doing 1930 songs, uh, ten Pan Alley tunes, not not Cole Porter or Rodgers and Hammerstein. I'll leave that to Feinstein Michael himself and to Bobby Short and rest his soul. You know, what I mean, you know, those people could sing those songs. I'm picking songs that nobody sings, so they, <laughs> they can't compare me to anything. And uh, but at the same time, uh, it's really my first public appearance since. Uh, my my wife passed away, and, and uh, 
we're sold out. It's like a party. 140 people sold out two weeks ago, two weeks before the date. And all friends, and they're coming. And, and it's going to be, I say it's going to be, even though by the time you hear this, it, it'll be passed. But I'm very excited about it. The rehearsal went beautifully. And it's going to have a lot of meaning to me, a lot of emotion. So I'll, I'll try to get through it. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came from you I'll write words so, so sweet They'll knock me off my feet Kisses on the bottom I'll be glad I got them I'll smile and say I hope you're feeling better love the way you always used to do I'll sit right down and write myself a letter pretty baby and make believe it came from you there have to have been many hilarious times at festivals that you can remember that you put a group together that seemed like a really good idea at the time but somehow something good or bad happens from it. Is there anything that comes to mind? You've been doing this for so many years. There have to be some big surprises that have happened with, with groups that have come out. Oh, this was involved with, with me. Uh, it was at Newport in a small concert in a hotel on the Friday nights. And it was a blues guitarist. I can't think of his name. He's from Boston. He's a good little guitar player. And he called me up to play with him. And he hollers out the key. I didn't hear it. I, he was playing in C and I played in G. <laughs> and it was really very strange because they're close. You know, G and C are close, but they don't quite make it. And I came off the stage and Ruth Brown was, uh, was, was sitting there and she says, I thought you could play the blues, man. You can't play anything, man. You're terrible. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. And I kept hitting, you know, the, 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 you know, it, 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 G, B, and D could be a C ninth, you know, C major ninth chord. You know what I mean? I you thought see? you were right, exactly. And so, so you know, and, and I could not, because it's so loud, you know, when you're playing with no, these I electronic know. things, so loud, you can't, it's too loud, you can't hear it. can't hear anything. Mm. And so... Uh, that was a very embarrassing moment because I love Ruth Brown when she said, man, you can't play the blues. <laughs> <laughs> Say I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came all the way from you I'll write words oh so sweet They'll knock me off my feet So glad that I got him out smile and say, I hope you're feeling better. And close with love the way you always used to do. I'll sit right down and write myself a letter. Baby, and make believe it came from you. I 
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Today, we're revisiting my 2006 conversation with jazz music festival producer, pianist, George Ween, who passed away last month. I'm looking at the music that you chose today as some of your favorites, and I love this list. You, you chose Weatherbird, Louis Armstrong. I love that tune. Talk about that and why you particularly like that performance. It was a very early duet recording. I don't know of any other duet jazz recordings that had any meaning in those days. And it's two masters that make this record live. And it's as modern and structured today as it was when it was done in, what, 27, 28, something like that, Mm -hmm. 1927, 1928. And to hear it played today... I went and played it the other night in, in here, and Dick Hyman plays it. A few people can play it, but they don't play it note for note. Hyman plays it note, Dick plays it note for note, uh, Winton doesn't. But he starts off playing it note for note, then he just takes it to another level, uh, which may be good or maybe not, because Louis Armstrong's level was fairly good. So, But I, I love Winton because he's one of the few young musicians that does go back and realizes the magnificence of that music mm. and can switch styles, can go from bebop and contemporary right back to the swing era mm-hmm. that, that Armstrong personified. But uh, it, it is one of the masterworks in the history of jazz, Weatherbird.
have a broad taste of jazz that you enjoy too, which is great. I loved you saying that you wanted to put different styles together in your jazz festivals because a lot of festivals don't do that. And you still do that. You're open to many different styles. Is that your personal taste or is it still the conscious thing that you want to bring an audience to all these different kinds of jazz? I feel a jazz festival should be everything from J to Z, you know, if it if you can do it. Your personal taste is one thing. I have to not always think of my personal taste when I'm doing a producing a festival. I have to think of the taste of people that are coming to the festival. And I have to try to educate. I don't like the word educate in that respect. But I try to expose them to different musics so that maybe they'll enjoy it. It's difficult because people are so fixed in their likes and dislikes that if you have people that like Miles Davis and you put on uh, Ruby Braff, I mean, they don't care about Ruby Braff. And a lot of the people that care about Ruby Braff don't care about Miles Davis. So it's too bad. But I judge from a personal point of view one thing, artistry. If I feel a musician is an artist, then I listen to him more than if he's just somebody playing notes, because a lot of musicians just play notes. And uh, that doesn't appeal to me, and I think it's one of the things, very, very difficult for somebody to play four or five choruses, six choruses, or even no choruses, play a modal scale you know, for, for five minutes and expect to hold the interest, because nobody's that good. Coltrane was good, he could do it. Sonny Rollins, you know. But hey, everybody's not Coltrane or Sonny Rollins. <laughs> Sometimes you need the help of a good song and a good chord progression, you know, to sort of guide you in, uh, in your improvisations. Because that's basically what a good song does. You know, it's like uh, Dizzy Gillespie playing I Can't Get Started and Buddy Berrigan playing I Can't Get Started. It's two marvelous renditions of the same songs, totally different styles, but both of them guided by the harmonic structure even if Dizzy altered the harmonic structure slightly, that's not important. He utilized the melody as a basis for his, his improvisation. Speaking to this and talking about having the structure of a great tune, and do you think that more musicians should do that, should be thinking about that? Do you think it would help jazz if they thought more about the audience? I don't think they care. I think they care about creating a little riff and putting their name on as a composer so they get the royalties on a recording. And that's a disease. That, is, that, that costs them a lot of money because very few people can write good songs. I mean, Thelonious Monk could write good songs. I mean, Thelonious Monk's songs were, if Thelonious had a different personality, he would have been as great a songwriter as Duke Ellington was. In fact, in some cases, he may be equal anyway to Duke Ellington. You know, it's just that he never could prolong his career the way Duke did because of his own personal illness problems. But, I mean, Thelonious Monk was a songwriter, but not many others. John Lewis was a composer. You know, and you could name them, and, but everybody, everybody, I can go sit down, you can go down and sit down. We do a little riff and put it, that's our tune, and put our name on it, a publisher, and then we play what, whatever we want to play. But that isn't, that, 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 that's destructive in the long run. It doesn't mean you have to play standards, but find the interesting melodies that jazz has had, regardless of style, and use that as your basis. 
And then if you want to do an original, do an original. But don't. I, I look at CDs, and when I see where every tune is written by the, the, the musician, I don't listen to the CD unless I really know the musician. If I know him and he asks me to listen, that's another story. But I get so many CDs in the mail, and everything, I'll see there's 12 tunes all written by the same person. And nobody's that good. They can't write that much. Duke Ellington. Talk about crescendo and diminuendo in blue. What that was like to be there, hear that. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, talk about that. Duke Ellington was, you know, very important to me personally. I got very close to him the last three or four years. I think starting in 68 to 69, I was his international impresario, but I had known him for many years before that because of Storyville, my club, and Newport. And Newport was very important to Duke. That 1956, Paul Gonzalez, and uh, that gave him an impetus for his latter career. And he always used to say, I was born in Newport in 1956, you know, and like, and here I am listening to his music from 1920s and 30s and just marveling at it, you know, and he says, born at Newport. Mm. But it brought me close to Duke, and uh, he was an idol that didn't have feet of clay. You know, he worked at his music. He would goof sometimes on the stage, you know, thinking he had to be commercial and do certain things. But after the gig, he would be upstairs writing music, you know, whether he was in, in Germany or, or, or South America or whatever. He loved his public he said, look, if I go to a town and things aren't right, I will never threaten not to play. The people came to hear me. He said, I will tell my manager never to work with this booker or this, this promoter again, but I will never not play. If the piano isn't right, I'll figure out something. That's, that's okay if you've got a band and you can do that, but he... he uh, had a warmth and a beauty about him. I miss him every day. I really do.
the Duke Ellington Orchestra at the 1956 Newport Jazz Festival, created by my guest, George Ween, who passed away last month. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway & Sons. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. Although we broadcast on NPR stations, we're an independent production not funded by NPR. We're funded primarily by your donations, so please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in. No gift is too small. And please tell your friends about Jazz Inspired and help us spread the word. Today we're revisiting my 2006 conversation with music festival producer, pianist George Ween, who died last month at the age of 95. Ween invented the Jazz Festival as we know it today and became friends with many of the great musicians he hired. I miss so many great musicians, you know, that were part of my life, you know. And sometimes you hear the music and it's talking to you, you know, and you, and you know they're gone, but uh, the music's still there. But I, I find trouble having a, getting a band together now when I want to play. So that's why I was glad I could get Bucky Pizzarelli to play with me because, you know, they know the repertoire, they know the tunes, they know the feeling, they know what you want. And, you know, many a night I would, uh, when they weren't working, I'd get a gig. I'd have Tyree Glenn, who was Duke's trombone player, fit right in. Ray Nance would play a gig with me, you know. And, and uh, uh, many of Duke's guys, Norris Turney, Harold Ashby, they all played. Jimmy Wood, you know. I mean, they all played with my, with the Newport All-Stars mm. at one time or another. And uh, so, hey, this was a togetherness there that all related Duke would call me up every so often when the man was playing, introduce me, I had to sit down and play the piano. And, I, and they sent me a record from uh, 
Sweden where I'm playing with Duke's band. And that, that was a thrill. I mean, you talk about thrills. <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, Duke's introducing me on the record. I didn't even know they recorded it. Oh, you didn't? You know, they sent me a check, believe it or not. But I didn't, I didn't know that uh, it was being recorded. And it uh, sounds okay, you know, as good as I can sound, which is only, which has its limits. But, uh, <laughs> but what a thrill. I mean, it is a thrill. I mean, anybody tells you it isn't, they'll blase about it. Don't believe it, you know, to sit in and have the man himself. Because Duke was the man, you know, and, and uh, uh, he had the respect of every musician that, that knew him and followed him. respect to the younger musicians today everybody talks about Duke Ellington you know now whether they know what the hell Duke Ellington was all about I don't know because they talk about it but then when I hear them play I wonder whether they knew what it was about <laughs> but they don't have to because they have their own thing if I listen to them and their own thing has a significance and a beauty to it I that's really all I care about it I don't like to people think I don't like young musicians you know I'm not interested I'm very interested in young musicians I mean, and they're the lifeblood of keeping this music alive. And uh, uh, they can play. And the problem is not their, who they are or what they play. Right now, we're in a transition period, and everybody is searching for a voice. And playing the instrument, they're marvelous players. But a lot of them don't have a style or a voice. And... Jazz was always a music of style and voice, whether it was Errol Garner or whether it was Basie Band that had this sound or whether it was uh, Miles with his mute and, and, uh, and the voice is the thing that sells jazz, the voice of the musician's instrument. And you, you can't, I, you might, if you're really a, an avid fan, be able to tell one musician from another because you've listened to the records so much. But basically, the public, the voice is not there, you know. Mm. And uh, uh, that's why jazz doesn't sell in tickets and the record sales are at a low ebb. Mm. And people had better learn to get that voice. They will. There'll be a voice come along. You, you think know. it will? Uh, You're being optimistic. You hope it will. Well, things do happen in music. Uh, you know, I mean, rock musicians sort of, in a sense stole the best thing that that uh, uh, happened to jazz was the blues, you know, and a lot of the young players don't play the blues, you know. They don't have it in their playing, and the rocks took the, took, took the blues and made it into, you know, billions of dollars of record sales. So they find a voice. I don't understand the voice they find sometimes, but I don't know why it's selling, but it's selling. It mm. reaches out to a public. And uh, uh, so, I don't know, you don't know. Jazz had a heyday back in the 50s 
you know, that came out of the swing era, the Benny Goodman era, into the Brubeck Miles era, you know, when jazz was big, but even at its biggest time, it was nothing compared to the Beatles probably sold more records than all jazz musicians combined. Mm. You know, maybe I'd, I'd say it's a strong statement, but it's not too far from the truth, you know. As you're talking about this and your feeling about playing with Duke, just looking at your face and the memory of it for you and the respect of it, I am struck by that with so many of the musicians that would be from an earlier generation that when they were young, as they got older, the entire time they were so passionate about the music and the soul of the music and frankly honored, not to get too highfalutin about it, to be able to play. As you said, you never take that for granted and I can tell how you are talking about your upcoming date at Feinstein's and all that's going to mean to you. Do you think the music means the same thing to players now? Oh, yes. You do. You think oh, the young yes. jazz musicians feel oh, that yes. same way? Oh yes, but it's 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 a different approach. They're thinking differently. They, you know, Charlie Parker made history with with one twelve bar blues chorus or two twelve bar blues choruses with a style and a sound and a voice. Now these musicians are thinking so much, and they don't realize they play so much. You go to hear a quartet. And they don't realize that after you're sitting there for two, two numbers, not two sets, two numbers, you've heard everything that musician can play. Mm -hmm. And that's what they don't understand. You have to hold something back. Mm -hmm. When you'd hear a great band, and Johnny Hodges, was, I mean, that's a big band, but you even say even with a small band. When, when you heard Johnny Hodges and he played, if you loved Johnny Hodges, you wanted more. One time, somebody gave me a CD with Johnny Hodges and, and uh, Wild Bill Davis and about 15 tunes on it. By the end of the 15 tune, I didn't want to hear Johnny Hodges anymore. <laughs> I said, take that off. I don't want to hear that. I mean, get, get it away from me. I don't want to get that feeling about Johnny Hodges. Mm. Now, this is a very important thing. Mm. So you, you go down. I go down to the different clubs, and they say, this is a great player. This is a great player. This is a... And I hear a number, it sounds good, the second number, the third number. I say, well, I'm going home. I already heard everything you can play. You know? <laughs> and they don't understand uh, that, but they are into their music. They feel it. Mm -hmm. They feel it. And some of the people in the audience feel it the same way. So you can't knock it. You can discuss it and maybe try to help. Because they all want to make more money. They all want to be, be accepted on a different level. And, and it isn't that they want to compromise. They just don't know any different. When they come out of, so many people come out of music schools and they learn what they're doing at jam sessions at the school and they carry that, you know, then they work and they come up with a structure. Of, and uh, that's why so many people going into world music for background. They're looking for different things. But that's fine. But you, you have to stay with something for a while. Mm. They'll make a one record and then they get another idea. They'll make another record with different voices, different instruments. You know, when you had a group like like uh, the 50s, they got a quartet together, a quintet together. It was Blakey or whether it was Horace Silver. And they kept their thing together until they established themselves. And uh, name any of those groups and you'll, you'll have the same thing. 
that was the heyday of jazz. Mm. And you could identify what their sound was because they did stick with it for a while. As you're saying this, I'm thinking about it. They didn't change every single record radically. They didn't feel that they Well, they, then people said he's playing the same old thing. Hey, you know, Picasso was one of the few artists that ever lived that could change his chorus and still be the boss. You know, <laughs> from, from 1900 <laughs> to uh, 1970 or whatever it was. But, I mean, Errol Garner had a chorus that nobody could match. When do you hear Earl Garner's name mentioned now when you talk about great piano players? He just happens to be one of the greatest piano players in the history of the music. I mean, you think of the voices on piano, and hey. How about Art Tatum? I know well, you're a Tatum fan. Talk about well, Tatum. I mean, you know, Tatum was the gateway to a lot of modern structure of things, but but uh, I love Tatum, I worship Tatum, but, but I loved Garner, I loved Earl Hines, I loved Teddy Wilson, but I like Bud Powell, you know what I mean? I, I like Hank Jones, I mean, I, I mean, these guys are masters, you know, and a lot of young players today, they can play. You know, I could name 10 names, but I don't want to name 10 because I'll leave out 10, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and, and I, when I tell you there's 20 or 30 good young piano players, and one of the few pianists now is not so young anymore because he's been around a long time that really understands how to reach an audience is Keith Jarrett. He sells out. And when you go and study his concert, you'll see why, how he structures his concert and knows the audience to, to whom he's playing. And it appears that he's being inward and only concerned with himself. But it's not true. He's concerned with his audience. He's but very he, clever but, with that. Oh, he is. He's, he's a master. Who was the first pianist you heard that really got you excited when you were a kid? Do you remember the first time you heard jazz or somebody turned you on to jazz? I, I, I don't know, small band jazz. See, I, I had, um, when I was 13 years old, I had a big band in my cellar. You know, where you got the kids <laughs> in the neighborhood, like rock uh, kids get together. Yeah, you had a big band. band. I had three, already three trumpets, big. two trombones, four saxophones, and rhythm or four rhythm kids from all over the you know neighborhood came <laughs> i love that They'd play it in the mood and play it in tunes like that they had the stock arrangements the big bands but then i got into improvisation and the listening to small bands and that was even before i heard armstrong's hot five and hot seven but i heard roy eldridge and benny goodman trio and quartet so i guess it was uh 
I, I got so I'd rather hear the Benny Goodman band. I'd rather hear the quartet and the trio because because Teddy Wilson really thrilled me in those days. I loved Teddy Wilson, and uh, he probably was my major influence. And then I studied jazz piano with a man by the name of Sam Sachs, whose idol was Earl Father Hines. So uh, uh, you'll hear a little bit of that in my playing. favorite of my guest, producer George Ween. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. How would you have time to practice with as busy as you are? That's what I've wondered all these years when I've heard you play. I thought, when does this man practice? I don't practice that much. It's just, I, I sort of gave up learning when I got involved in the business end of it, you know. And, but I, so I was happy to play what I knew, and I just keep my fingers try to keep them uh, flexible, but... Uh, we'll talk about this CD. Ween Women and Song and More. I, I used to sing when I was a kid, very young, and my mother played a little piano for me. I'd sing in some of these kiddie programs, you know, when I was seven, eight years old, some of these songs I sang when I was seven or eight years old. And uh, I always wanted to sing, you know. I can't sing. I, mean, I don't have a, I'm not a vocalist, you know. But uh, I can phrase the song fairly well. And um, so years ago, I was at a party in New York, and I can't remember the man's name, but he was a wonderful boat piano player. And uh, he had set up this party. And I, I have his name in my book, but I can't remember it because it was a very funny night. And um, he had set up the party and I invited Ahmed Erdogan. And there were a lot of people there, and he played and sang quite a bit that night. And there were some other singers there. I think Herb Jeffries was there. And it was one of these New York parties, a soiree. And at the end of the night, I sat down and sang one song. I would sit right down and write myself a letter. Now, this was 1955. And uh, uh, 54, 55, I don't know. And um, George Frazier, who was a jazz writer, whom Ahmed Erdogan respected very, very much. Hey, why don't you record George Wheat? He has a record company, Storyville Records, and you have Atlantic. It'd be a good story. So the next thing I know, Ahmed asked me to make a record, Wheat Women and Song. Well, I hadn't met his brother Nessui yet. And Nessui was just being brought into Atlantic Records to do their jazz. He'd been on the West Coast and had not been in the record business, had a record store and everything. And that was the beginning of, of Atlantic really becoming a major 
company. And Nestle came in and he says, who the hell is this George Wayne that I have to record? I came in here to record. He was the other, only other group he had was the Modern Jazz Quartet, John Lewis. <laughs> well, Nestle and I became lifelong friends. He forgave me you know, <laughs> that, he, that he had to produce my album. Uh. But there's lots of stories about that. But uh, then years later, I decided to try to make another album. And I, most of the stuff I didn't like, but there was, I culled a lot of it. So this is a combination of uh, stuff I did in the 90s and stuff I did in the 50s. Every time it rains, it rains Pennies from heaven Don't you know each cloud contains Pennies from heaven You'll find your fortune falling All over town Be sure that your umbrella Is upside down Trade them for a package of sunshine and flowers If you want the things you love There must be showers So when you hear it thunder Don't run under a tree There'll be pennies from heaven For you and me How do you think with all your entrepreneurial activities and getting these jazz festivals together and all that. Do you think your being a jazz musician, being a musician, has affected the way you've approached these things from a business standpoint? Oh, there's no question about it. Mm. There's no question about it. But there are other influences in my life that affected, shall we say, a showbiz approach of, of uh, thinking of the audience, thinking of the way you plan a show. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I used to listen to Al Jolson and Eddie Cantor when I was a kid, you know, and I, and great songs and great, always had meaning to me before I even got involved with jazz. And so I think some of those things carried over in your concern for being a producer. Mm. And, you know, we had to develop certain things with musicians. We had to develop what we call festival sets because they would come with no concept of time. And they would go on, and hey, I mean, and you, the early festivals went till two o'clock in the morning, you know what I mean? It was crazy. It was lovely for the people that, that stayed that were the real jazz. They were the same that I was when I'd go to New York and start in at eight o'clock in Child's Restaurant and end up at four o'clock in the morning on 52nd Street. That was, and I, I used that approach in my producing, I wanted to, do that, but I didn't want it to go to four o'clock in the morning. Right, right. So I had to tell a musician, you got, you know, 45 minutes, you got 50. And uh, now we plan a little better. Now we give them an hour. But in some, those early days, sometimes you had to tell a group, you got 35 minutes. You look at you, you're crazy. But they learned to adapt. They learned that festivals, if they stay on too long, they're on too long. Right. And so that that was part of the things that were developed. And, and in, in the I never forget Stevie Wonder. He played on a uh, on a soul festival we did years ago, and we gave him plenty of time, seventy minutes. But Stevie likes to play for three hours. Right. You know what I mean. So when it was over, Stevie says, "You know, George," he said, "I didn't think I could do that, but you know, I worked it out. It was okay." 
<laughs> I wish I could get him now to do some jazz because Stevie's a good jazz player. Oh, absolutely. But uh, it's very difficult to get hold of Stevie. You know? That's always what I hope for is some yeah. interesting combinations like that. People yeah. like Stevie Wonder who you know would like to do it if you could get to him to actually put it together. What would you like to produce that you haven't gotten to produce? If you could, Stevie Wonder's a good example, a dream situation, what would you like to do if everybody would say yes? That's difficult because I've exercised most of my dreams. I my know, life. I know, that's why I'm asking. And, uh, I don't have uh, many dreams right now. In other words, we just saved the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and we brought in some major artists. I mean, Bruce Springsteen's coming doing Pete Seeger songs. I, I think that's marvelous because Pete Seeger is one of my very I'll say more. He's more than a close friend. He's somebody I, I just uh, I dedicated my book to Pete Seeger mm. and, and Toshi, who never give up hope that the world can be a better place mm -hmm. in which to live. You know, that's what Pete means to me. So, when Springsteen answered, uh, uh, he not personally when I called his management, and they said they're interested in coming to New Orleans. Well, that was very important because that that. Having an artist like Springsteen come to New Orleans, hey, we're still alive. Mm -hmm. and a lot of other great artists, including Bob Dylan and, and uh, Paul Simon, and, and oh, these aren't jazz people, but then you've got your jazz tent in New Orleans, Herbie Hancock's coming, you know, and you've got, you've got many hours of many different kinds of music, and including gospel, and, but those big names are the frosting on the cake, mm -hmm. and they're the ones that catch the eye of the people as they walk by. Do a lot of the people that come to hear Bruce Springsteen stay and go hear Herbie Hancock? Do you think oh, you get? that I don't know. Because I've always wondered that if I by adding know. those other people, if it exposes some new people to jazz. I imagine there is a percentage of mm -hmm. that. But I find that, the, that celebrity love is just that. I mean... Mm -hmm. You 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 only interested in the celebrity you love, and you, you. I remember once we were at a press conference at Carnegie Hall, and Judith Aaron, and we were doing a Eastwood After Hours concert, good concert. I was sitting at a table, and uh, Lenny Niehaus, I think, was sitting at a table, and Judith Aaron, and Clint Eastwood. Well, the place was packed with press, so. Every question was directed to uh, Clint Eastwood. And Clint, finally, after about 20 minutes, after had, had to leave. The entire room left. The <laughs> three of us are sitting there at the table. <laughs> Nobody cared about the concert. Nobody cared about it. So, we live in a celebrity world. You sure, you sure get a, uh, a lesson in who you are when, as far as you think you're important when, when you're <laughs> sitting next to a celebrity. <laughs> What's happening here in New York? We're both New Yorkers. What's coming up? You know, the big thing we do every year is the JVC Festival. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, we take over as much of New York City as we can. And we do about eight or nine concerts at Carnegie Hall. We haven't announced the schedule yet, but there's a few interesting events. One of them, we're going to do a tribute to Lorraine Gordon and the Vanguard. And uh, I want to call it Sweet Lorraine, but uh, she doesn't necessarily want to call it that. Oh, I but, like that. But I think it's a good title, you know, and, and we'll do that. And uh, Herbie Hancock's going to be involved. We're doing a lot of things around the city. And uh, at, at, at smaller concerts like uh, at, at the Danny Kaye Theater 
and would do some things uptown in the studio museum and and uh, I mean JVC is is a wonderful sponsor. They've been with us 23 years now. And they sponsor Newport and we do a few things around the world. Newport of course will be in August and uh we're getting that program together and at Newport what we decided to do is not look for the celebrities because one we can't get them and two let's have faith in the music so we've had good luck the past couple of years haven't had the big crowds we might have had but we're off one or two thousand people but we're still drawing six seven eight thousand people instead of nine ten eleven thousand mm-hmm. people and they're great festivals and they're up at Newport at Fort Adams and so this year uh JVC calling us is God bless them because they they've stuck with me and uh, they they they're the best sponsor possible because they never try to tell me what to do or how to do mm. they respect what we do and in New York yeah, we're, we're very proud of what we did to New York you know when we came to New York New York was a uh, it was a dead place in the summer and Carnegie Hall and Philharmonic Hall which is now Avery Fish Hall I went to both halls I said would you stay open an extra 7 or 8 days to me and the next thing I know I was putting on 40 concerts in a 10 day period <laughs> in New York City including midnight concerts at at uh, uh Radio City Music Hall boat rides and uh, a Staten Island ferry I mean New York was wide open for any ideas we had and uh we broke even the first year i couldn't believe it because we didn't have sponsor money or anything and $10 tickets was a huge ticket and you could rent the hall and pay the musicians on a $10 ticket those days are gone forever yeah. and uh, uh so what it did was opened up new york now new york is a summer festival all year long and uh, and we're very proud of that you know and uh and then JVC came along and kept us alive and uh, now every every, every uh, June whoever's the mayor ever since uh, I think uh, Ed Koch's first term the mayor has this party at Gracie Mansion for us and, and Bloomberg and Giuliani and David Dinkins and Koch and you know they all have a beautiful party and uh, at, at and it's JVC Jazz Festival week in New York and it was sort of smothered a little bit recently because of jazz at Lincoln Center because they get most of the publicity but we're still doing our thing and Winton is very nice to me he says you know actually what we are is an extension of you he says Aww. to me yeah, he says that well you started and, it all well we did start it all and and i'm very very concerned with jazz at Lincoln Center that i'm on the board and in the long run that's what has to exist because it's jazz has to be institutionalized you know just like symphony or mm-hmm. museum or something not that that should affect the music because uh, they're going to have to open up many things at jazz and lincoln center and uh, but it has to be subsidized it, it's very nice to have a nightclub and go and musicians are working for the door mm. you know i'm working for the door at michael feinstein's i mean that's what but i mean that's a different story but i mean they're doing i go down to clubs and musicians are playing for the door and then maybe they take in the whole group $300 for the night you know mm-hmm. hey people don't realize they, this they've got to make a living musicians it's very hard to make so, a living as a jazz and, musician and uh, this is ridiculous mm-hmm. you know now it's it's sort of a romanticized situation 
oh, these poor musicians working and they're playing their hearts out. I mean, hell with that, man. You know, hey, pay these guys. No, I'm with you. There's nothing romantic and, about not being and, able to pay the rent. Yeah, and so it, it, uh, I've always paid musicians, and I, I've, uh, I don't know what scale is. I'm, I'm, I'm tough to deal with on a one level, but another level, I, a musician has to make a nice pay, mm -hmm. you know. And so it, it's just, that's the way it is. But, but I, I work very hard for Jazz and Lincoln Center in addition to my mm -hmm. own programming. They asked me to uh, ask every board member to sign a conflict of interest paper. I said, how can I sign that? I'm a walking <laughs> conflict of interest. <laughs> Well, I'm thanking you for all the musicians that you have had at your festivals and all the audiences, and it's just great what you've done over the years and what you're continuing to do. And have a ball at Feinstein's. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be a great evening. Judy, you're, you're something special because you, you're a musician, and yet you want to do these things. And that's, you know, Mary McPartland has done that, and in, in many ways that's just as important a contribution as you're playing good music. Thank you. That's nice. Thank you very much. And thanks for taking this time. You've been listening to my 2006 conversation with jazz producer, pianist George Ween, who passed away last month at the age of 95. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidoff. You can download podcasts of Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired from all the usual podcast platforms or listen at jazzinspired.com. Jazz Inspired is sponsored in part with generous support from our listeners and Page at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York. Visit Page at 63 Main at opentable.com. Our opening music was airmail special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Mori on guitar. For more information, visit jazzinspired.com or judycarmichael.com. 